And I've entitled the sermon today, Jesus and the Very Big Problem of Casting Out Demons. Let me read for you the text, Mark 3, chapter 22, excuse me, verse 22 through verse 30. you have your Bible, follow along in your Bible. If you don't happen to have your Bible, the words will be behind you. Let me encourage you, though, however, one of the, the lost arts of today is it's almost like navigation. Uh, every time we get in our car, we can simply put in a, a, a GPS, uh, and people have lost the ability to navigate or even know where they are in the city. Don't let that happen to you in your Bible. Uh, get your hands on a text. Be able to find the chapter. Uh, there is, uh, there is a, a process of learning how the Bible is put together. If you have it in your hand, let me encourage you. Take it out and let me begin reading. 322. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemy they may utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So this morning, let me share with you our outline. Just a little bit. We're going to really look at four things. Overall, when we look at verses 22 through 30, I want us to look at kind of the big question. This is maybe what we might think of as the elephant in the room. Uh, that there's a context or background for all that is taking place. And first of all, we just want to discuss what is the issue. And that's why I call this Jesus and the very big problem of casting out demons. When we, uh, then next we're going to take a look, specifically starting in verse 22, we're going to see the scribes answer. And if you're looking behind me and you're seeing a different kind of outline, I'll explain it in a second. Thirdly, we're going to take a look at Jesus' answer to this very big question. And lastly, we're going to end with a truly wonderful promise and a truly terrible warning. Now, if you're more visual, I was actually just kind of tinkering around. One of the things I'm trying to do is find ways for you not only to take in. If you are a note taker, there's the outline. The big question, the scribe's answer, Jesus' answer, and a truly terrible or a, a truly wonderful promise, a truly terrible warning. If you're more visual, I originally did this with emojis on my phone, and I was just trying to think of a way 
that you could see the, the way the, the text flows. I ended up with a question mark, the big question, the devil horns, which is going to be the accusation, the way the scribes answer this question uh, by invoking a, na a name of Beelzebub. Uh, and, and then we're going to see kind of the muscle arm, because Jesus' answer is going to say, hey, it's not demons being cast out by demons. Somebody stronger than the strong man walked into the house and plundered the goods. And then we're going to take a look at this, this phrase that Jesus says, of, that all sins will be forgiven. So I have this healed heart. And then next, but, those that speak against the Holy Spirit. And so we have kind of an icon of speaking against the Holy Spirit here. And then lastly, the eternal flame. Jesus is very clear. You commit an eternal sin when you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're going to end. We're going to take a look at what was that sin? What does blasphemy against the Spirit look like? Can you do that? Can you go to hell? Is that a one-time sin? So we'll end with exploring a little more about the scriptures there. All right. So let's begin. Let's talk about this kind of big question of what's been taking place. So in our study today, in Jesus' day and age, right, so Mark transports us back, and he's explaining what was taking place in Jesus' life and ministry. And one of the debates that was raging at the time was this. How does Jesus cast out demons? How? It wasn't a matter of if, because actually that was undeniable. We had not only tens of thousands of witnesses, perhaps even more than that. People who had seen Jesus perform what is miraculous, and specifically had seen demons cast out. And that is one of the things that was absolutely very clear. But the question that must have occupied, I don't know, uh, anytime there's, there's a, a, a major new television series, it kind of uh, consumes talk around uh, the workplace. Or I remember for me, uh, this is going back many, many years, when Survivor, so this is a, a U.S. American show, when Survivor came out, uh, everybody was so interested because it was a weekly episode and you watched it and you're wondering who will get kicked off the island next. Survivor, if you don't know it, was people are put on the island, you have 10 or 12, I don't know, and weekly, somebody gets voted off the island. And it's amazing how this becomes a phenomenon in the culture where it, it takes over. It's what you talk about with your family. It's what you watch with your family. It was what you talked about with your friends. We would have watch parties. Everybody would come and gather, uh, and you would watch it together. You talked about it at work. And if there was something similar to this where we see uh, a, a, persona a personality or a person who would have dominated conversation, it would have been Jesus at this time. But on, on a scale that we have never seen, right? That, that little silly illustration of watching Survivor and how, uh, for me and my little circle of friends, it became what we talked about, it became what we looked forward to. In Jesus' day and age, no, no personality, no events would have arrested the attention of an entire watching community than Jesus and what he was doing. When you sat at the dinner table, people discussed what Jesus was doing. Did they hear about the new healings? Did they hear about the way he's casting out demons? Did they hear his teaching? When they were, were outside, maybe by the fire, maybe as the men, and, and the, maybe as the children are going to bed, maybe in, in that day and age, I don't know, for me, I think of a fireplace, or not a fireplace, a fire pit, somewhere where you go 
outside, sitting around. I would believe this occupied that conversation late in the night. Who is he? How does he cast out demons? But probably where this debate raged, the hottest was with the religious leaders that we've been talking about over the past few weeks, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And specifically, we're going to be introduced to a new group that's going to come down from Jerusalem. So if you didn't see this in the text, it says in verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying. So what Jesus has been doing, by the way, and there should be a map behind me, you have to understand just some geography so you understand what a big deal this is. Jerusalem is all the way down south here. Jesus is not in Jerusalem. Jesus' ministry is taking place up in the northern area around Galilee, specifically, uh, oftentimes, in what we call Capernaum or Capernaum, depending on your pronunciation. Jesus is far from the religious center. But news of Jesus and his miracles and probably all the challenges that we've been reading about, Jesus healing on the Sabbath, debates on fasting, reach Jerusalem. And notice how it says come down. We look at this and think, no, that's north. Jerusalem was in the, was in the, uh, the higher, uh, I would call them mountains, but it was in the higher mountainous regions. And everybody who left Jerusalem basically went down. And so this says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they're going to visit. And it shows you, what was taking place with Jesus was a pretty big deal. Because even though he's ministering up in this, in this northern area of Galilee, around uh, an area where it is, it is not influential, but although it's heavily populated, this is not a place where the, the scribes are going to often visit. But they're going to make a visit because of this Jesus. And I would assume they probably met with the religious leaders of the day. They met with the, the Pharisees. They met with the scribes. They met with those who were in the synagogue. And they had to come to a conclusion, how is this man casting out demons? Because they needed to give an official, in a sense, ruling. What do you do with this guy? We've already debated, and he's already talked to us about fasting. He's already talked to us about healing on the Sabbath. We've already debated him on many issues. But there was a sticky problem of the authority to cast out demons. So, first, let's just see how the scribes answer this. Now, by the way, a scribe, just in case or you need a reminder, the scribes were teachers of the law. That's, they, they were formally trained legal experts in God's law. A, a way of thinking about them, uh, maybe in, in our common understanding would be a lawyer. A lawyer is somebody who's trained in the law, and they're trained for a very specific, usually purpose in the law. So you might have a criminal lawyer. You might have a, a lawyer who specializes in business law. You, you have lawyers who specialize in different areas. But that's who the scribes were. The scribes were lawyers, in a sense, who specialized only in interpreting the law. And so you can imagine they were very influential, and you can imagine the ones that came from Jerusalem were the most influential. And so they come down, and we have on record what was their official designation, or what was their official ruling on how Jesus is catching out demons. Because one thing is for sure is they couldn't deny it. It was undeniable. There was so much clear evidence. And so we see 
their official ruling is this. It says in verse 22, they came down from Jerusalem saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. Now that name might not mean anything to you, but let me just explain what they're accusing Jesus of doing. I don't know what your translation says, but uh, even in a commentary this week, I, I, I read uh, something that was untrue, and it was they said this is Beelzebub. And you think, what's the big difference? If, if you know Beelzebub is Lord of the Flies, right? It can be like an unkind name, but Beelzebub, uh, or uh, you could say Baalzebub, is the meaning is Lord of the Flies. I don't know what your translation has, but that's actually not the translation. It's Beelzebub. And that specific designation, Beelzebub, was a Canaanite god. You remember back in Israel's history? In Israel's history, they uh, were surrounded by the Canaanites, and the Canaanites worshipped other gods. And Beelzebub was actually a Canaanite god. And the meaning of this name is master of the house. And Beelzebul, he was the lord of the demons, or the prince of demons. And among many other things, not only did he, he cause demon worship, but he would incite warfare. And so, in the Israelites' history, they had a history with the Canaanites, and very specifically, they had, in a sense, what you might think of a demonology. You know that today as we sit, there's books on witchcraft, there's books on demonology, there's websites you can go on demon worship. Uh, that kind of thing existed in Jesus' time, too. So it's not just us who has a curiosity in demonology or demon worship or, or naming the, the uh, most important demons or picturing those demons. And this Beelzebul was this master of the house. He was the prince of demons. And the reason I get into technicalities is because that's the specific name or that's the specific demon they're saying is possessing Jesus. So here is your official answer. We know Jesus has the authority to cast out demons. We can't deny it. So what is their pronunciation? They say that Jesus is casting out demons because he himself is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Whether they, that specifically meant that he was possessed by Satan himself, or whether this, this name, Prince of Demons, was a, was a powerful demon, we don't know. But here's what we know. They absolutely denied that Jesus was casting out demons by the Spirit of God. Or the fact that he was God. But they were saying this man is possessed by Satan himself, or by Beelzebul, the Prince of Demons. So this is the accusation. And you can see what it evil, wicked, intentional lie this is. Because in front of them is the man who claims to be the Messiah. And they're going to attribute him casting out demons to Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Satan himself. Here's a man, Jesus, and he is possessed by Satan. Now, that is how the Pharisees, or the, excuse me, the scribes answer the question. I want to next look at verses 22 to 27. And I want to see how Jesus is going to answer them. In verse 23, he says, And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables. It's not clear who he's calling to himself. Is he calling only his disciples? 
Is he calling the crowds to himself? Uh, is he calling uh, the crowds along with the scribes? We're not clear because oftentimes it was mixed, right? So what we do know is that Jesus, in the midst of all of these, uh, this conversation, there's a debate. How is Jesus casting out demons? We have scribes who have come from Jerusalem and made an accusation of Beelzebul. And now we have the crowd, the crowds, right? This, this, this accusation, you know, is like wildfire. Uh, it is spreading through all the synagogues. It's spreading to all the people. And so Jesus is going to call them to himself, and he says, and he said to them in parables. If you're uh, kind of keeping track of, of Mark and keeping track of how Mark relates to other gospels, this is the first time we've ever seen the word parable in Mark. Uh, so just, just as a note, if, if you have been studying the scriptures uh, and if you've been studying Mark, just make note, this is the first time it says Jesus spoke in parables. The reason I point that out is Mark 4 goes to the sower, uh, the parable of the sower. Immediately, we're going to see that Jesus almost always uses parables when he's teaching. If you don't know what a parable is, here's a very simple understanding. Parables are everyday object lessons that communicate stories about the kingdom or stories of God's truth. You could, use, you could say it's a simile or metaphor. I'll just say a parable is a simple object lesson about the kingdom or about God's truth. And Jesus is going to teach in parables all the time. And these are the first parables that he gives. Here's the first parable. And we're going to see two parables, and we're going to basically see Jesus use logic to undermine the scribe's accusation of casting out demons because he's possessed by Beelzebul. In verse 24 it says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So Jesus first says, A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, if, if you simply process this, a kingdom at war with itself is civil war. We, we know that a kingdom at war with it and within itself tears the country apart. So Jesus' first common explanation is, listen, if Satan is casting out Satan, if demons are casting out demons, then let's just think logically. Jesus basically asks him to stop, think logically. Can a kingdom, can a kingdom who's at civil war with itself stand? No, is a very clear answer. Jesus next then asks Another simple question. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Now, Jesus doesn't fill in the blanks, but you could think of many different illustrations for this. Whether it's a husband and wife, uh, I, I thought of a, uh, immediately thought of a biblical illustration. Um, go, going back in the, uh, the Old Testament, remember Isaac and, and Rebecca, and each having a favorite son, uh, and, and each wanting that son to be kind of the son of promise, and how divisive and how uh, that really tore a family apart. Remember Jacob and Esau competing for the Lord's blessing. What a dysfunctional family. But a, a, a family that is uh, against itself. I also thought of, uh, you know, the medieval times, whenever a new king takes reign, and how there's a competition within the family, literally to try to kill off all other heirs, so that you can have the opportunity to sit on the throne. Uh, look at the Roman empires. Uh, look at medieval times. You see this acted out again and again and again. Houses or, or families that have had an opportunity um, for to be able to take power, to take rule. 
And what happens is when a family begins to fight amongst itself, it divides it. So Jesus says, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. So Jesus gives two everyday simple object lessons. He says, you know this. It's not up for debate. You know it. I know it. Then he's going to apply them to the accusations against him. And he's going to say this. He says, and if Satan, this is verse 26, has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So Jesus basically takes their accusations at face value. He says, listen, if I'm possessed by the rule, if I'm the prince of demons, and I'm casting out demons, does that make any sense? What he says is, that kingdom cannot stand. In fact, he adds one extra thing. He says, it is coming to an end. If their accusation is true, and by Satan, I'm casting out Satan, then here's what you know. Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. It can't stand. Now, if Jesus is not casting out demons by demons, so what is the correct conclusion? And Jesus is going to tell a, another parable. You can view these as all one parable. You can view these as separate. But in verse 27, Jesus says this. And he's going to actually answer what is the correct conclusion. What should the people see and understand about his ministry and how he's casting out demons? And he says this. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now let me just put very specific names to these characters. So it's very clear. Satan is obviously the strong man. Jesus is the one who entered the strong man's house and bound him. And the plundering of goods is Jesus casting out demons and plundering Satan's house and asserting his authority to release those under demonic possession. So, Jesus says, the answer is not, I'm casting out demons because I'm possessed by Beelzebul. I'm casting out demons because I walked into the strong man's house. I bound up Satan, and I'm taking whatever and whomever I want and casting out demons. The answer to the question is, I have the authority to walk in and to dictate to Satan whether he is allowed to demon or, or to spiritually possess people. He, Jesus basically walked in and said, I have the authority, and this is what we see over and over again, right? When, when demons recognize Jesus, they immediately leave, and Jesus commands them, and, and with his authority, not to speak and not to proclaim who he is and his identity. We talked about that last week. So that's Jesus' answer. Now, I want to make a transition here because Jesus has answered their question, but he just doesn't end there. So Jesus just doesn't call the crowds and say, I'm not casting out demons by being possessed by a demon. I'm casting out demons because I literally walked in to my enemy's house and I bound him up and I'm plundering his goods. But we know that Jesus 
is going to invite us to know even more. And that's where I want to move to a truly wonderful promise and a truly terrible warning. So we looked at the big question. The question was, how is Jesus casting out demons? We looked at the scribes, and we looked at how they answered it, and they said, Beelzebul, he's possessed. We looked at Jesus' answer, and Jesus was, let me tell you some parables. Here's the real answer. There's somebody stronger than the strong man, and the strong man is being plundered. I am the one who is plundering Satan. And Jesus ends in verse 28 to 30. Go ahead and look right there. And he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. So they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, if you didn't recognize this, there is a hidden amen in here. It's one of the reasons I pointed out the amen at the end of our song. And it's at the very beginning. I don't know how your translation uh, translates it, but mine says, truly, I say to you. The word here in the Greek is actually amen. It's amen. And Jesus starts this statement with an amen statement. The re if, now, if, if we were Jewish, then we might recognize that what Jesus is doing is calling attention to what he's going to say after this. So it, it would be like if I was talking to you, a normal way that I might use language. I might say, okay, everybody, listen very carefully, because I want you to hear this. I might stop like that. And I might, and, and if you were sitting here, you would recognize that what I say next, of all the things I'm saying, I expect you to believe they're true, but I especially want you to focus in on this truth. And we have ways of calling attention to specific truths, and that's what Jesus does here. So if you didn't recognize it, even highlight it in verse 28, because Jesus has a truly I say to you statement. It's an amen statement. And what he's going to say after is very, very important. In fact, it's, it's more of the application to the parable that he just told. So what does Jesus say after this amen statement? The first thing he says is a truly wonderful promise. And he says, all sins will be forgiven, children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. So what does all mean? I'm not sure if I can express this because it's very technical. But all means all. It's all sins. There is not a sin that God does not or cannot forgive, right? It says all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. Now, one of the things that's important just to grasp here is what Jesus is saying is, now we, we have the ability not just to read into Mark and look very specifically at the events, but we also know the bigger picture. We know that Jesus has laid down his life. We know that Jesus has died for sin. And so, Looking at the bigger picture, what Jesus is saying is there's no sin that can in any way be more valuable than the sacrifice of his life that he laid down. Murder, prostitution, drug addicts, fill in the blank. Living, living a life that is defrauding people. Abortion. 
everything that we could fit in here. And one of some of the reasons I mentioned suicide. And when we, when we think of other religions, there's, there's very specific sins that we say, if you do this, then you cannot be forgiven. All means all. All sin. The minute we, we say that there is any sin that is greater than the sacrifice that Jesus laid down is to diminish the glorious life gift that Jesus laid down. Nothing, nothing is worth more than God's love for us. Nothing is worth more than Jesus and his willing sacrifice for sin. And so all means all. It means no one is beyond God's grace. No one. The, the, the sins that we think of that are, are absolutely terrible, the sins of abuse, the sins of sexual abuse, the, the sins uh, that we, we think of in each and every culture might be a little bit different, but we, we tend to always dwell on murder. We tend to always dwell on violence. We tend to uh, fill it in, drunkenness, debauchery. You fill it in. Here's what I know. That God is willing to forgive those sins. And that there's no one beyond God's grace. And that everyone, every single person who asks God to forgive, and let me just add that. I'm not saying God blankets in general. Every sin is fine. Everything is okay. Everyone's a good person. And at the end, everyone will be fine. That's exactly not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that looking past Mark 3 and looking at Jesus laying down his life, all sins are, are forgiven because Jesus has laid down his life. It's a sacrifice that is more valuable uh, than any sin, that is worth more than any sin, that can cover any sin. Fill in the blanks of how we want to say it. But it's only forgiven to those who come and ask God for forgiveness. For those who humble themselves, recognize their sin, and ask God to forgive and place their faith in him. So all means all, but it means all who will come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness of their sins. Now, let me move to the terrible warning. Because not only is there a truly wonderful promise, and that is that all sin can be forgiven, and if all sin can be forgiven, that means no one is beyond God's saving grace. But we do have a truly terrible warning, and we need to take this with, in a sense, a sense of soberness, because this comes after Jesus' amen statement. He wants us to dwell on this. He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Let's talk about this, maybe explore this a little bit, because if you, Sam, if you just said all sins are forgiven, then what's taking place here? Because it kind of looks like maybe there's a sin that God won't forgive. Is there a sin that is, that is so great that God won't forgive? So let's explore this, and let's talk about this together, and this is where we want to kind of end our time thinking about this. So first, let me just talk about what is blasphemy. It says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What's blasphemy? In our modern language, we would call it slander or libel. Slander is, is spoken. It is when you accuse somebody falsely. You know it to be a lie, 
but you use your words to speak falsehoods or untruths about somebody else. That's called slander, and it's a criminal offense. If you slander somebody, then you can uh, be taken to court, you can be taken to jail, you can pay a fine, or you can serve jail time. It all depends on the, the level of slander. So slander is saying what you know to be untrue, to, to diminish somebody's character. Libel is when it's written. Instead of spoken, it's written down. And so both of these are crimes, and this is where the idea of blasphemy comes. It's, it's speaking an untruth about not just anyone specifically, but this says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So we can commit slander or libel against a person. Oftentimes when, when this act is, is done against God himself, we use the word blasphemy. And that crosses many cultures. I remember in Pakistan, we had blasphemy laws. Uh, it was speaking uh, about Muhammad or, or specifically Allah. And so you had laws against blaspheming. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but just like we had kind of a, 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 an appearance of an amen, did you notice how the Holy Spirit suddenly jumped in this passage this whole time when we've been talking about Jesus? I don't know if you caught that, but this whole time Jesus is talking about himself and the accusations are against Jesus, and he's casting out the demons by Beelzebul. And suddenly Jesus gets to verse 29, he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Does that seem odd? To all of a sudden have an appearance of the Holy Spirit? And what this shows, and maybe just make a connection, that Jesus is wanting us to see, is that what Jesus is saying is, the works that I'm doing, the miracles that I'm doing, the casting out of demons, is not through uh, my own power. It is, the, it is the power of the Holy Spirit in me. So Jesus said, everything I'm doing is literally, it, the Holy Spirit is witnessing to you of who I am. And so just as when, well, Carrie mentioned earlier, that when, when God breathed life into us, what does he breathe into us? The Holy Spirit. Is that when we, For us to believe that when Jesus forgives sins, that we would be fundamentally different. Why would simple faith in Jesus forgiving sins be enough? It's not. We actually need a whole new heart. And the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us. And what Jesus is saying here is, everything that you see me doing is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is testifying to you. The Holy Spirit is, is uh, speaking through me. He's performing miracles through me. He's casting out demons through me. And so Jesus is saying, to deny what you have seen, the work of the Holy Spirit, is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. So this is the connection for Jesus. Why all of a sudden the appearance of the Holy Spirit in this text? It's because Jesus so clearly sees everything he's doing through the, we think of God the Father, we have God the Son, Jesus, and we have God the Spirit. Jesus so clearly sees his work as God the Spirit testifying to who he is. But he says to deny this is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, let's get just this practical. Can you commit the unforgivable sin, or an unforgivable sin? How, how is blasphemy against the Spirit different? 
When we think of the, the scribes, so let me just talk, because Jesus is talking about this very, very specific context. The scribes, their sin is more than just simple unbelief. And we'll, we'll take a look at a practical example. We'll take a look at the life of Paul. What the scribes were doing was a willful misrepresentation of the testimony of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit had given evidence to Jesus' identity through his miracles by casting out demons, demonstrating that he is the Messiah, the one that God had sent to save. And the, the scribes' sin was not a single act. It was not one single act of accusing Jesus of casting out demons by Baal. If, if you want to get into technicalities, the, the best way of interpreting the, the actual Greek here is that they kept on saying. Not that they said once, but they kept on denying Jesus' identity. And not only denying it because it was a mistake. Have you ever made an honest mistake? Have you, have you ever been in that situation where you're like positive? Think, think of this. Uh, in, in my house, at times, I'll be positive I saw something like in the bedroom. Like, it's in the bedroom. I saw it. Just go take a look. Uh, and you find out, actually, I was wrong. It was in the car. Uh, it's, it's something simple like that. But have you been so dead sure on something? Which is like, just go look. I just saw it this morning. Open your eyes, and you'll find it. It's on the bed, where I left it. And you're like, it's not on the bed. You're like, get a look again. And you're finally going like, it's not on the bed. Okay. Uh, hasn't that happened to you? Has that happened to you in like normal, everyday life about simple stuff? You're so sure. That's an honest mistake. In my mind, it was on the bed. That's the last place my brain could, could picture. That's not the mistake that these scribes are making. They're not mistaken about Jesus' identity. They are specifically, willfully, hard-heartedly making a blasphemous, wicked, evil accusation. Knowing specifically the testimony of the Holy Spirit, being scribes and understanding no one could do this unless he were God himself, they have told the people through casting out demons that he is the prince of demons. And so this is a willful, ongoing act. In fact, it, it, it stays with the scribes all the way through Jesus' crucifixion and even afterwards. And so when we look at this specific sin, here's my understanding of the scripture. What was the sin the scribes committed that Jesus said the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that will never be forgiven? It's the ongoing, hard-hearted denial of the witness of the Spirit. The scribes did it, and you can do it today. If you continually harden your heart to the witness of the Spirit, here's what's very clear. You'll never have forgiveness. Because God can't forgive somebody who will not come to him and ask for forgiveness. Willing unbelief, not mistaken unbelief, willing unbelief cannot be forgiven. So can all sins be forgiven? Yes. But willing unbelief is a person who will not come to God for forgiveness of sins because they refuse to acknowledge who he is. It's different than mistake. Now, I'll give you an example, and then we'll close. Let me end with a story of hope. Because we have a story in the scriptures of somebody who did exactly this, who blasphemed God, and yet becomes one of his greatest tools to bring salvation to the very ends of the earth. 
Turn with me to 1 Timothy. We're going to read 12 to 17. Here's a story of Paul. And Paul says in 1 Timothy, let me read it, 1, verse 12 to 17, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Listen to these words. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted, what? Ignorantly in unbelief. What is the sin of the scribes? It is willful unbelief. A refusal to admit they had seen the work of the Spirit. Paul says, I acted in unbelief. And notice what happened. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Can God turn the heart of a blasphemer? Yes. Can God reach a persecutor? Yes. Can God reach somebody who is absolutely so adamantly opposed in his work? Yes. In fact, Paul says this is a trustworthy and desert, a, a trustworthy saying. By the way, this is Paul's version of Amen, of, of his giving a cue. By the way, I'm going to tell you something I want you to remember. This is a trustworthy saying. And deserving of full acceptance, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. And notice how he ends, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Is anyone beyond God's grace? No. Never. Will God forgive all sin? He'll forgive all sin. Everyone who comes to God and asks for him to forgive will be forgiven. Who will not be forgiven? The one who commits a blasphemy against the Spirit, who refuses to recognize and is unwilling to repent of their sin, and refuses to come to God for forgiveness. The scribe very specifically refused to understand to believe in Jesus' identity, and as a result, refuse to believe in him. Let me end with just a few practical questions. Let me give you three. Let me first talk to those who know for certain. So if you are in this room and you know for certain you're a follower of Jesus, here's my first question. Jesus had the authority and the power to bind Satan and to carry away his goods. Are there areas of your life that remain under Satan's power and authority where you're not experiencing Jesus' relief. So for those of you who know you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus walked into Satan's house, bound Satan, and said, I will plunder his goods. Are you living in areas where you're still a slave to sin? Number two, let me talk to you those to those who may be undecided about Jesus. That you're not opposed, but you're undecided. You're, you have not yet placed your faith. So let me invite you to receive the freedom that Jesus can give. Freedom from living under the power and control of Satan. And to be set free from sinful habits that dominate your life. To be set free from guilt that dominates your life. And let me invite you to respond to Jesus' wonderful promise to forgive all sin. But there's a caveat. You have to come to him. God doesn't forgive our sins when we don't humble ourselves, come to him, and ask. Lastly, let me just speak on behalf of Jesus. These are Jesus' words, not mine. Let me give you a warning, a loving but a difficult word. Know for certain 
But if your heart is hardened to the witness of the Holy Spirit, if your heart is hardened to Jesus' identity, and you choose to believe a lie, and to continue living your life the way that you desire, and being your own master, and not wanting to face the difficulties or hardships that might come from following Jesus, you will damn yourself to hell. You. Not me. Not the church. Not anyone other than you. And that is a loving word to tell you to avert disaster. And that's not my word. That's not my judgment. Jesus says you will damn yourself to hell. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We do praise you that it is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And God, we believe that you have spoken through your word today. Jesus, teach us what it means that you walked into the strong man's house and you bound him and you are plundering his goods. What does that mean for us who believe? Jesus, teach us the wonderful promise that all sins will be forgiven. I pray that any area of our life that we, we have not confessed our sin, that we would do so, humble our hearts. God, I pray for those hearts that right now are hard. God, you can soften them. God, we have Paul as an example. There is no one too far. There is no sin too great. You will forgive all sins for those who come to you. We pray that no one would harden their hearts against the witness and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Terry,